Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's finals week, huh? Won't you be uh, glad when you never have to sit for another final in your whole life? Don't know whether to break it to you now or let you find it out uh, on your own. It never ends. Life's full of deadlines and tests, and it just goes on and on. Don't you think uh, that I know at this very moment Each of you will sit and listen to me speak, and when I'm finished, in your own mind, you'll all raise a placard that will have a number on it, 1 to 10, or uh, A to F. And so here I am, 22 and a half years after leaving this university, sitting, or I guess I should say standing, for another final. And no matter where you end up in life, All you are receiving at this university is a preview of coming attractions. But stay with it. Last time I spoke here, uh, it was at a devotional assembly about a year and a half ago, and it was on a beautiful spring morning at a instead of in an evening, and I'm really quite surprised, to be honest with you, with how many of you went out into the wind tonight to be here. What's changed? Uh, there's probably twice as many here as there was. At, is, there a new, uh, <laughs> is there a new question on the Temple Recommend form? Did you attend all sixteen, all of the sixteen stake uh, conferences, or do I really represent no more to you than a cheap date? <laughs> I've come with a message. Several years ago, I heard a popular song that contained the line, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. My immediate reaction was anger. The next day, I heard the song again, and I laughed at myself. Because in the interim, I had figured out why the line made me so mad. It was because it sounded so true. In grade school, while others went to the movies, my parents made me go to church. In junior high school, I collected fast offerings while others slept until noon. In high school, I passed up working on Sunday and earning double time at a grocery store so I could keep the Sabbath day holy. During my mission for two whole years, I walked down the streets on Saturday nights with my companion Don't anticipate me. 
I walked down the streets with uh, my missionary companion, while everyone else our age drove past us with their dates, laughing, pointing, and asking themselves, what's with those guys? As a young married couple, I remember attending church with our squirming children on Super Bowl Sunday, while the world ate, drank, and cheered, we could be found pulling the hair and flipping the head or ears of our children <laughs> and encouraging them to listen to another blockbuster talk <laughs> by a member of the State High Council. <sighs> Got your number. While traveling in our old clunker of a station wagon, we'd pull up alongside a Mercedes-Benz. The occupants, with their national average 1.7 kids. <laughs> I'm not to the punchline yet. The national average 1.7 kids dressed in designer jeans would point and laugh at my six kids dressed in their Sears tough skins. <laughs> Why do you all hate tough skins? <laughs> they last a long time. Now, do you see why that line made me so mad? My frustration peaked last year when my college-age kids prevailed on me to attend a concert in this very facility. No sacrifice is too great for my kids. When the singer announced the song from which this line is taken, the crowd went wild. He said, quote, I'm not trying to convert anyone. I just want to provide you with an alternative. I thought the roof was going to come off this place. I wanted to race down those stairs, grab the microphone, and express my opinion on the subject. Of course, my kids would have been horrified. And I think even you may have thought me to be just a little bit tacky. The statement, sinners laugh and saints cry, is a simplistic generalization at best. We saints definitely have our share of laughter, and some sinners leave a trail of broken lives and buckets of tears. For saints as well as sinners, all that is meaningful in life doesn't have to be funny. However, to brush aside the meaning of the line of the song with this equally simplistic argument would be to ignore a reasonable question. At any given point in time, don't many who make no effort to live the church standards appear to be enjoying life more than we do? Our lives seem to be controlled by inhibitions, constraints, service, sacrifice, guilty consciences, and financial obligations. In the world, we see people with none of these so-called restrictions who are home with their kids on more than just Monday night, and they have 10 to 15 percent more of their gross income to spend. By the time we meet our financial obligations, it seems that we can't afford to do anything wrong. Let's be honest with ourselves. 
the saints do a lot of crying. However, nothing worth having is free. The celestial happiness we seek does not come without a price. We obtain celestial joy the old-fashioned way. We earn it. The bogish phrase, no pain, no gain, applies equally well to things of the Spirit. Sometimes we cry out, what have I done wrong to deserve this? Often, trials and tribulations are allowed to come into our life because of what we're doing right. We're striving for purification and sanctification that will lead us to exaltation. We must all pass through a certain amount of sacrifice, which makes our spirits pliable in the hands of the Lord. Joseph Smith's life helps us understand this principle somewhat. By all outward appearances, the year of 1838 and 39 was one of the darkest in history and certainly a dark period in his life. Remember, he was imprisoned in Liberty Jail. The saints were being persecuted, robbed, murdered, and there was dissension and apostasy in the ranks. Now, we might be inclined to underestimate Joseph's suffering. I don't speak of the coldness and the dampness of the jail, but of his discouragement. We may think that his anguish would be mitigated by his memory of seeing the Father and the Savior by his memory of the visits from Moroni, John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, and a host of other heavenly messengers. In reality, however, this knowledge may have intensified the pain. After all, he had an absolute perfect knowledge that God could free him if he wanted to. <clears throat> it was in this setting that Joseph cried unto the Lord, Oh, God! Where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? To this agonized plea came the Lord's answer. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. For thy good. What possible good could come from that experience? B.H. Roberts gave an insight when describing Joseph's reaction to a similar experience in 1842. Quote, What is most pleasing to record of this period of enforced seclusion while avoiding his enemies is the development of that tenderness of soul manifested in his reflections upon the friends who had stood by him from the commencement of his public career. No act of kindness seems to go unmentioned. No risk run for him that is not appreciated. Indeed, he gathers much benefit from those trials, since their effect upon his nature seems to be a softening rather than a hardening influence. And the trials of life are always beneficial where they do not harden and brutalize men's souls. And every day... Under this affliction, prophet, the prophet seems to have grown much more tender-hearted, more universal in his sympathies. His moments of spiritual exaltation are superb. No one can read them and doubt that the inspiration of God was giving this man's spirit understanding. Close quote. <clears throat> 
Now you remember after the Lord told Joseph, these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. He went on to say, the Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Part of the reason for the Savior's suffering in Gethsemane was that he would have an infinite compassion for us in our trials and tribulation. He also qualified himself to become the perfect judge. Not one of us will be able to approach the Savior on Judgment Day and say, well, yeah, but you don't know what it was like down there. Your husband did not leave you. Your wife did not leave you. Your child did not die. You were not born with a handicap. You didn't turn 22 and not be married. He said, <clears throat> He has descended below them all. And think of a loving father in heaven viewing his beloved son suffering in the garden of Gethsemane. The Savior cried out, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Can you imagine the tears in the eyes of the father when he had to deny his son's request? Can we comprehend the sacred tears shed by the Father when he had to abandon the Savior on the cross and then hear him say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet, even as God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ wept, the sinners laughed. In order that we can know the Savior, each of us must pass through our own Gethsemane. Ella Wheeler Wilcox wrote a beautiful poem of that name, which I would like to quote. In golden youth, when seems the earth a summer land of singing mirth, when souls are glad and hearts are light and not a shadow lurks in sight, we do not know it, but there lies somewhere veiled under evening skies a garden which we all must see, the Garden of Gethsemane. With joyous steps we go our ways, love lends a halo to our days. Light sorrows sail like clouds afar. We laugh and say how strong we are. We hurry on and hurrying go, close to the border, land of woe, that waits for you and waits for me forever waits Gethsemane. Down shadowy lanes, across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams, behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fount of tears, the garden lies, strive as you may, you cannot miss it in your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine but thine, who only pray, let this cup pass, and cannot see the purpose of Gethsemane. There is probably 
no greater Gethsemane for saint or sinner than to experience the death of one of our children. I'm going to read a letter to you written by a father just moments after learning that his 10-year-old daughter had just been killed. As I read it to you, note this man's, this good man's Gethsemane became a sanctifying experience because of his knowledge of the gospel and the gift of the comforter. Contrast his reaction with what it uh, might have been without the light of the gospel. I, of course, read it with his permission. Just moments after he had learned, as a matter of fact, he was out of town when he found this out. If you may be permitted to listen, these are thoughts your dear old dad would like to express in his and your mom's hour of joy and sorrow. You have been an angel of light in our home. Even in your passing, you have sanctified the experience by the sweet sorrow of this temporary parting. As I sit in this hotel room, many miles from home, and only moments after hearing of your passing, I have confidence that you are really home. It's pleasing to know that you are now unencumbered by the mild but troublesome physical limitations you accepted and lived with in such an adorable, non-complaining way. Mom and I and your seven brothers and sisters are better because you came to our house. Soon after your day of birth, you helped us to accept fear and the unknown, to better love others with physical, emotional, or mental challenges, to accept the disappointment accompanying an unknown prognosis, and to query and plead with our Father, who today you know better than we do. As you grew older, we learned determination from you, who had every right to spill your milk, but never did, who royally beat your mom and dad in tetherball, who averaged 97% in spelling for an entire year, and by sheer grit struggled with math, and who, without ever a complaint, sat with your mom every night, summer, and school months, to read and understand what you had read. Yes, we did our best to help you learn, but what we learned from you cannot be printed in books, cannot be written, because it is almost too sacred to rehearse. We pray for all of us who the Lord expects to stay here on the job for yet a while. Our prayers are that we will be worthy to be reunited with you and see you whole and perfect. Oh, how we would have loved to have you stay. How we would love to hear your ever-spontaneous, I love you. How we'd thrill to feel that clinging embrace, oh yes, especially today. As you pass through your Gethsemane, while others laugh with the sinners, Don't curse the purifying mold in which you've been placed. Your crucible is divine, and it will lead you to perfection and ultimate exaltation. 
We don't seek the unpleasant things in life. We don't look for pain and suffering. We're not a masochistic church. Masochistic. I don't know what it means. Um, I threw it in for Elder Maxwell and Bishop Eyring. I also threw it in so I could have a reprieve from reading that uh, letter. We don't look for pain and suffering. However, we recognize the sanctification which occurs when the trials and tribulations of life are met and turned into spiritual stepping stones. Now thus far we've been speaking of tears of sorrow and pain. I shall now speak of a different type of tears. They are unique to the saints and will never be shed by sinners. I speak of the tears of spiritual joy. As an elders quorum president, we worked with several less active families. In a personal interview with one couple, I asked, isn't it about time you went to the temple with your family? I couldn't believe their answer. They said yes. We cried. They were asked to speak of their conversion in a Saturday evening session of state conference, and as they expressed their love, I cried. I thought I was all cried out by the time we went to the temple until I saw them with their beautiful daughters kneel at the altar and be sealed for time and all eternity. Shortly after my call to the presiding bishopric, I received a letter from one of my uncles. Dear Glenn, I saw you on television last Sunday. Do you realize what an accomplishment it was to get your old reprobate of an uncle to watch General Conference? That was the best talk I've ever heard. However, it was the first I've ever heard. That summer, he and his wife celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. After the reception, I walked them to their car and said, You know, with this calling, I have received the seating power. If you would commit to a temple marriage, I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll perform it for you free. (laughs) A year passed, and as I arrived home late one night, a message awaited me. Please call your uncle no matter what time you get home. I called, and he said, Glenn, I'm calling to collect on your golden wedding anniversary offer of a free marriage ceiling in the Salt Lake Temple. I asked, are you serious? When? He said, my bishop thinks I can be good enough by December. A year ago, I sealed them to each other and then sealed two of their sons to them. After 51 years of marriage, my uncle and aunt received their crowning glory and blessings. The entire family cried. Just 10 days ago, President Ezra Taft Benson stood before the general authorities of the church in the monthly temple meeting. As you are aware, he has been ill, and this was the first time we had been together with him as general authorities since general conference two months ago. He stood, expressed his love to us, and said, Brethren, it is so good.
to be with you again. And then the prophet cried. At the conclusion of the Savior's visit to the people of Nephi, he felt their love and faith and was deeply touched. He had just announced that he must leave, but as he looked at the people, he beheld they were in tears and had looked steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. And he said unto them, Behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Then he healed the sick, and those who were now whole did bow down at his feet and did worship him and bathe his feet with their tears. And then Jesus commanded that their little children should be brought. So they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him. And he said, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now behold, my joy is full. And when he had said these words, he wept. And he took their little children one by one and blessed them, and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. Elder Bruce R. McConkie spoke of tears in general conference just a few weeks before his death. In one of the most powerful testimonies I have ever heard, that special witness, with full and complete knowledge that his passing was near, said, quote, I testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in a coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears. Those of us who witnessed the delivery of this magnificent address can testify that those tears were flowing even as he stood at the pulpit. They were not tears of sorrow relative to leaving this mortal existence, but tears of joy at the anticipation of the blessing awaiting him. Just one day before Elder McConkie's address, I received my call to the presiding bishopric. One day after his address, on Easter morning, at 5 a.m., I was writing my remarks to be delivered that afternoon in conference. As I reflected on Elder McConkie's beautiful oration, I was overcome with the knowledge of my own weaknesses and inadequacies. However, as I began to comprehend what had taken place in my own life, self-doubt was replaced with peace, confidence, and eternal joy. I wept. I penned the words which seem appropriate to repeat at this time. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the transformation His Atonement has wrought in me. I once was in darkness and now see light. I once lost all of my confidence and now know all things are possible in the Lord. I once felt shame and now am filled with His love, 
even unto the consuming of my flesh. I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I feel the same at this Christmas season as I did on that Easter Sunday two and a half years ago. That knowledge brings tears. Would I rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints? Not for one moment. Once one has felt the joy of the gospel, there is no going back to a frivolous world. Try as we might, travel where we may, there is an emptiness all the laughter the world has to offer cannot fill. That emptiness can be filled only by placing ourselves in tune with eternal truths and living according to the prescribed laws of God. As our understanding increases, we realize that tears of sorrow can be exquisitely beautiful, and they ultimately give way to tears of eternal joy. Throughout the world at this season, congregations will sing, Joy to the world! The Lord is come. Little does the world know of true joy. I thank God for the restoration of the gospel, which gives that understanding. I pray that each of you will discover the majesty of crying with the saints. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.